Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your spirit. God, we pray that those two things would come together as we hear your word. You would inspire us by your spirit to to understand the scriptures, that you'd give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Lord, that as we study this book, we would understand your heart through Paul the Apostle, bringing it back to the grace of God, rediscovering the grace of God. It's so easy for us to, to turn away, to fall away, to forget, God, but I pray we would be reminded of the foundation of our faith, which is grace, and the work that you did that we couldn't. So bless this time, in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, the reason, there's some debate. Some epistles, Paul says, this is where I'm at um, and writing this epistle. We see that with First and Second, Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, Romans. And then there are other epistles where it's kind of questionable and you got to kind of fill in the gaps and really do a lot of scholarly research, which not all of us like to do that, to really try to understand when and where Paul wrote these specific epistles. Now, the question when and where the book of Galatians was written and goes hand in hand. It's a very unique one. It goes hand in hand. Uh, When Paul wrote Galatians is determined on where he wrote the book of Galatians. And you have, uh, I'm not going to get too much into this, but I want you to understand why I'm teaching it right here. Um, If you uh, notice in the chronological Bible that we're reading, the year in the Bible, real quick question, is anyone still reading that? I hope you are. Yeah, awesome. Hey, if you started the year in the Bible, and you kind of got distracted or you weren't following through, just pick up now. It's, what's the date? It's July, what is it? 15th, right? Just start July 15th. Start July 16th tomorrow. Uh, don't, don't give up. And that's one of the themes that Paul will talk about here. But we'll see that Galatians is right there in the chronological Bible where I'm teaching it here, right after the book of or, uh, Acts chapter 14 when Paul's in Antioch. Now, the two views that most scholars debate about are the northern view and the southern view. Okay, You had northern Galatia, which was the original Galatia. And then you had southern Galatia when Rome took over, the southern region became a province of Galatia. So you had north Galatia, you had south Galatia. Well, when we look at the book of Acts, Paul, leading up to this point, he had gone through the region of southern Galatia and he he planted churches and he shared the gospel and he made disciples. If, as I believe to be the truth, Paul is writing this specifically to the churches in South Galatia, then the date would be around 48 AD. The council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, which we'll get into when we get back to Acts, uh, happened at about 49 AD. If it was the northern view, then it happened later because Paul hadn't gone to those places yet. But we'll understand a little bit further why it was likely written to the southern Galatians. One of the reasons is that Barnabas is mentioned to these people, to these churches in Galatia, as if they know him. Well, Barnabas was only with Paul on his first missionary journey. Before their second, his second missionary journey, they parted ways. So that's a good indication that these people know Barnabas and met him. He, they only could have met him and known him, according to Acts and the epistles, if he was on if it was through that first missionary journey that Paul went on. I don't want to take too much time to give you these different arguments. If you have questions about it, we can talk more about it. 
But something significant that we see happen preceding this epistle is Paul's encounter with that southern region of Galatia in Acts chapter 13 and 14. That was one of their uh, main places of focus in Paul's first missionary journey. And if you were with us last week, uh, specifically in Acts chapter 14, we see there was a lot of opposition against Paul, and it came in different forms. In one instance, he's in Iconium, and he's sharing the gospel, and he heals this crippled man, and the people start worshiping Paul and Barnabas as if they're Greek gods. They think Paul is Hermes, and Barnabas is Zeus, and they go to provide sacrifices to them, and they go, no, 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 we're just men like you, we're mere men. There's nothing special about us other than the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working through our lives. Then after that, we see these Jews, some from Antioch, some from other places, they travel 100 miles to go after Paul and Barnabas. They end up stoning Paul, possibly to death. The disciples thought he was dead, and yet he came back to life, woke back up. We don't really know the details. And then he went right back in there preaching the gospel. The point is, there's a lot of division in Iconium and in the southern region of Galatia as to where people stood in regards to the truth of the gospel, but also with Paul. People either loved him, worshipped him as a god, or they hated him and tried to kill him. All those things just happened leading up to the significant time period that Paul is in Antioch. And it's likely during this time in Antioch that Paul penned these letters. Now, one thing we're going to see both at the end of Acts 14 and the beginning of Acts chapter 15 and also through this epistle is that there's a problem going on, a specific uh, locational problem that's going on in the southern region of Galatia. There are these men referred to as Judaizers, okay? And what they're saying is that in order to be saved, it's not just a relationship with Jesus. You have to accept Jesus and also keep the most law. You still need to keep the Levitical law, the 613 laws. It's Jesus plus the law equals salvation. But that's not the gospel. That's bad doctrine. And Paul is going to address that specifically. We're not saved by works. It's by grace. This epistle is all about grace. What is grace? We'll understand it further as we get into this epistle, but it's unearned, unmerited favor from God. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. It's not by works, our works. It's by his work on the cross. The epistle to the Galatians is a book for recovering Pharisees. Those who have been caught in the trap of legalism and religion. When I say Pharisees, I'm not just talking about people that rejected Jesus. I'm talking about Christians that are Pharisees as well. Christians that initially started understanding the grace of God and somewhere along the lines, they, they got away. They started adding religion. They started adding this to-do list. They thought all of a sudden, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the Bible says that God loves me unconditionally, but I don't really believe it. And I'm fighting for God to love me more. I want to earn his love. I, I, I want my relationship with him to be based on what I do and not what he does. There's Pharisees even in the church, just as Paul addresses throughout this epistle. 
And he focuses so much on grace. Why? Because grace is the answer to legalism. It's not about what we accomplish. It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ did for us on the cross. And we'll understand where works come to play in our faith, but we don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation, not because we have to, but because we want to. And God puts that thing in our heart that we desire to live for him, but we're not saved by that. We're saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us. See, the problem in the church of Galatia is not that they haven't received the grace of God. It's that they've forgotten the grace of God. They've forgotten it. They've turned away from it. They've gotten away from it. So too, do many believers in the church today, myself included, there's this tendency for us to fall into this legalistic, religious lifestyle. We once freely received the grace of God, but somewhere along the lines, we convince ourselves that it's no longer free. I have to work for it. I have to earn it. God's only going to love me if I do A, B, and C. But that's not the gospel. Paul, he writes this letter so that the churches in Galatia rediscover the grace of God. That's the title of this teaching series. The title of the teaching series, meaning the whole book, is Rediscovering Grace. It's so easy for us to forget or turn away from the grace of God. As we grow in our faith, sometimes we can actually grow backwards. We start adding all these things to our relationship with Jesus. We put the burden of the law back on our shoulders. Not that there isn't uh, something to obedience. There is. But we all of a sudden think, uh, I don't know if I'm really saved because I messed up. I did this thing. I committed this sin. But that would imply that your salvation is based on what you do. It's not based on what we do. It's based on what he did and how we respond to what he did on the cross. He's reminding the church about the grace of God in hopes that they'll rediscover the grace of God. Sometimes not only do we need to remember, we need to rediscover We need a fresh experience. We need a fresh reminder. God, if I've gotten away from your grace, if I'm misunderstanding the gospel, help me to rediscover the gospel as if it's for the first time once again. One of the main themes of this epistle is listed in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. This is one of the theme verses just so we can kind of encapsulate the heart behind this letter. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, not about what we do, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even if we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. If you're putting your trust in your works, you can't be justified by that. Again, it's putting our trust in the completed work of Christ. I want to outline this book for you really quick. The first two chapters, Paul discusses his personal experiences with the grace of God, how he came to know the Lord and how that kind of catapulted him uh, to ministry in those early stages of his faith, recognizing how much grace God had on him. Then in chapters 3 and 4, uh, Paul focuses on the doctrine of grace, the biblical theological understanding of the grace of God. 
And then chapters 5 and 6, he focuses on the practical application of the grace of God. This is my experience with the grace of God. This is what the Bible says about the grace of God. And this is what I do with the grace of God. And that's exactly what we'll see as we continue to study this epistle. So how Paul is going to start this epistle is going to start it off by bringing the church back to the basics of the gospel. And that's the title of this teaching series is rediscovering grace title of this teaching is back to the basics back to the basics It's easy for us to complicate things in general It's easy for us to overcomplicate and obsess over our jobs. It's easy for us to overcomplicate relationships. Maybe it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and we keep obsessing in our mind. If I do this, maybe they love me. If I don't do this, then maybe they don't love me. We can do it in our relationships with our spouses, with other people. We can certainly do it with our relationship with God. We can do it with processes. We can do it with procedures the point is sometimes we just need to get brought back to the basics the fundamentals the foundation of why we believe what we believe elizabeth gave me permission to share this story um so elizabeth she used to work out with me in the beginning of our relationship right she was just trying to win me over right so she's like i like working out too no she really does she likes working out um uh but ever since jude was born you know there's like hard to find time and yeah and i usually go to the gym pretty early and, and we keep talking about man i want to start working out together it's just something that we both enjoy to do uh enjoy doing uh together and and so last week elizabeth's like all right i'm gonna start going with you again so she's been going with me ask her how sore her legs are um so she started going with me, but but even though Elizabeth has had a lot of experience in working out, she's had personal trainers in the past and all these different things, she's relearning everything. She's relearning the fundamental movements because her body's not do, used to doing these things. So whether it's squats or bench press or lap pull down, whatever the case may be, there's a specific form. And so I have to reteach her that form. Luckily, I'm a personal trainer, so I'm qualified to do this. But the re, the purpose of this and why I'm sharing it is I have to bring Elizabeth back to the basics of working out, the basic fundamental movements. Why? Because if she starts off and jumps past the basics, she's not going to reach her goals. She's not going to get to where she wants to get to. It's the same with our faith. When we overcomplicate our faith and we neglect the grace of God, we neglect the basic tenets of the truth of God's word, we're not going to get to where God's calling us to go. Because all of a sudden we find ourselves, I'm not even practicing a relationship with Jesus. I'm just marking off my devotional time as a to-do list. Yeah, I said I'll pray for that person, so I'm just going to mark it off, but my heart wasn't really in it. And it's really about the heart and how we respond to God's heart and what he did for us on the cross. Oftentimes, God, he has to bring us backwards to catapult us forwards. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of the basics of our faith. That's exactly what Paul's going to do in these first 10 verses. If you would with me, it's Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Paul, right off the bat, he introduces himself. 
Who is Paul? Well, if you've been with us in our study through Acts, then you know who Paul is, right? Paul was a Pharisee. Maybe he was part of the Sanhedrin. He consented to the death of Stephen, the very first martyr in Acts chapter 7. And after that, he went on a rampage, separating families, dragging people out of their homes, having some in prison, some murdered. He was destined, or at least he was determined to prove the truth wrong. And on his road to Damascus, attempting to prove the truth wrong, what happened? The truth proved him wrong. Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus in his resurrected form as this bright light that was brighter than the sun. And he asked Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my people. You're persecuting me. I'm taking this personally. Saul of Tarsus, also Paul, he responded. He says, who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? You you are God. I know. I know this is legit. He says, I'm Jesus Christ. So there's the introduction. That's when the conversion of Paul takes place. See, Paul. He's the perfect one to write this epistle because he, too, is a recovering Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees concerning the law, blameless. He was more zealous than all of his counterparts. He loved the traditions of his father. He understands the difference between legalism and grace. And though he tried with every ounce of his being to earn God's love, to earn God's favor, he knew he couldn't do it. Jesus reveals the the grace of God to Paul. On the road to Damascus. So this is who Paul is. Paul, he also says, and then it's the next two words, that he's an apostle. We talked about this more thoroughly last week, so I'm not going to get into it too deep. An apostle essentially is one who is sent out with a message from God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. The early apostles, they had a certain authority to be able to uh, write scripture directly inspired by God. Uh, God, he built the foundation of the early church, not just on the words of Christ. Christ, but also on the words of the apostles. There's a lot to that. But because we talked about it last week, we're not going to get too far into that. And he says this, look, Galatians chapter one, verse one, not from men. So he's called to be apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead. When we look at the original Greek language, we see that Paul is upset He's upset with the churches of Galatia because it's more than one church, which we'll explain in a minute. He's upset because they've turned away from God. He's upset because they're questioning his authority. And it's not that Paul's like having a power trip. He's like, you don't question my authority. I'm a legitimate apostle. See, Paul, he wasn't there. He wasn't communicating these things just so that he can prove who he was as an apostle. What was at stake here was not just Paul's reputation, but their salvation. Because if these Judaizers spread that Paul wasn't a legitimate apostle, then what does that mean? That his message is no good. He's not really sent from God. So God didn't really give him a message. So if they can discredit who Paul is, they can discredit what Paul preaches. Now, I don't know how they would argue this, but it was probably something like this, as people do today. Paul wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. He wasn't with Jesus in his three years of ministry. He didn't meet Jesus till after the resurrection, even if the, what if the resurrection isn't true? 
So people could have all these different questions, all in an effort to diminish Paul's reputation as an apostle so that they can diminish and discredit the message of the gospel. That's why Paul says, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. It wasn't like the disciples got together and they said, Paul will make a good apostle. He's a Pharisee. Let's send him out. No, that's not what happened. It was Jesus Christ who called Paul personally on the road to Damascus. And if you remember, Paul's call to ministry was this phrase. Paul, I'll show you how many things you must suffer for my namesake. What a calling, right? And we see that Paul, he suffered all kinds of things, shipwrecks. He was uh, scourged so many times. He was stoned possibly to death. So much suffering. But that was his calling into the ministry. It was that phrase. It was from Jesus Christ. It wasn't from one of the apostles. That's why I said it wasn't from men nor through a man, but through Jesus Christ. Paul is also making it clear. That Jesus Christ is God. He said it wasn't just men or a man that called me. It was Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is more than just a mere man. Yes, he's fully man, but he's also fully God. He says it wasn't just a man that called me. It was Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is more than just a man. Through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. This is interesting. He intros these first couple verses with the resurrection. He talks about the resurrection even before he talks about the crucifixion, what he, which he will in a second. Why would Paul do this? Think a couple reasons. He wants to remind the church of Galatia about the power of the resurrection because the Bible tells us the resurrection wasn't just an event. When Jesus rose from the dead, he sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to live and dwell in believers to give us the power to overcome sin. So it's not just an event that took place, we experience the resurrection even today by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were focused on works. He's trying to get them back to the source of the power. But also, just as we were discussing, he talks about the resurrection before the crucifixion. Why? Because Paul didn't meet Jesus at the foot of the cross. He met Jesus in his resurrected form. We have uh, nothing to say that Paul was right there during the crucifixion. What sticks out in Paul's mind is the first time he met Jesus personally, that was on the road to Damascus when he saw him in the resurrected form. In his mind, it was the resurrection that was so significant to him. And then later on, he understood, okay, the cross, the resurrection. But I saw Jesus first when he was risen from the dead. So Paul, he tells us who he's writing to. Again, the churches of Galatia. This wasn't just one church. There were several churches that had been planted by Paul and Barnabas. And if we take this southern view, scholars suggest that they were only there for a year or so. So they planted multiple, uh, multiple churches uh, within a, a year or so. I think the primary point here is not whether Paul was writing to the northern region of Galatia or the southern region of Galatia or the Galatians period, though that's originally who this letter was intended to. But he's writing this letter to us, to, to all the churches. This letter, this epistle, is for Calvary Chapel Running Springs. 
It's not just for the Galatians, whether the northern or the southern region. It's for all churches of all time. And he says to them in Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Right off the bat. He says, grace to you and peace from God. Grace and peace, they were cultural intros. Grace was for the Greek. The Greek identified with grace. And the Jew identified with peace. Shalom. So, he's writing to both sides. Those that have a, a Jewish upbringing and culture and those that have a, a Greek upbringing and culture. Because as we saw in the southern region of Galatia, in those uh, that missionary journey in chapter 13 and 14, you had Jews and you had Greeks. So he's trying to meet both people right where they're at. He's being all things to all men so that by all means some might get saved. But he gives us the source of grace and peace says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, they come from God. Grace and peace, they don't come from anything else other than God. Grace and peace, they don't come from our relationships other than our relationship with God. Grace and peace, they don't come from our jobs, our careers, what we own, the house we have. Uh, you name it, hobbies, habits. Grace and peace certainly don't come from works. Grace and peace come from the source of grace and peace, which is God. See, and quit getting distracted by all these things that you're doing and the doing and the doing and being busy about all these things and consider the source of grace and peace. It comes from God. They're given by God. What's interesting about Paul is that he uses the word grace over 100 times in his epistles, okay? He uses the word grace over 100 times in his epistles. The rest of the New Testament authors, they use the word grace 55 times, okay? 55 times. Paul almost doubles that with the 100 plus times he talks about grace. Why? Because Paul, I think, recognized grace more than any other one of the apostles. He recognized his need for grace. He, he was the chief sinner, still is, he claims to be. He was guilty of so much. He recognized how much grace God bestowed on him. And he has a hard time not talking about the grace of God. It's what he wants to talk about all the time. The grace of God. The Pharisee of Pharisees understands what it means to be saved by grace and not by works. So he says right after this, he shares the gospel. Verse 4, who, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. This is point number one. It all starts with the gospel. It all starts with the gospel. He starts off this letter with the gospel. Why? Because they've turned away from the gospel. They've turned away from the grace of God. 
We need to be reminded of the grace of God. We need to be reminded of the gospel. Paul, being a powerful, miracle worker apostle, still recognized that grace wasn't just given on the road to Damascus. I need grace today. I need it tomorrow. I certainly needed it yesterday. Grace is not something that just we receive at one time at our conversion when we accept the Lord as our Lord and Savior. We need the gospel every single day. As long as we're sinners, we still need grace. When you start living a perfect life, then you don't need grace anymore. But I don't imagine that's going to happen. We can't live the perfect life. We can't live the life that Jesus lived. We need the grace of God. We need the forgiveness of God. So Paul brings it back to the gospel and he starts with this, who gave himself for our sins. We only get grace because Christ gave. We only get grace because Christ gave. He gave himself. He gave his life. Without Christ giving his life, we don't get grace. We're still dead in our sins. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is innocent. Not one. We've all committed at least a sin. Not many, right? We've all said the white lie. Bible says God hates lying. Even white lies. We may have committed other things. Maybe it's uh, an addiction. Maybe it's some type of habit. Maybe it's anger in the heart. Maybe it's lust in the heart. Maybe it's the physical act of adultery. It could be a number of things. The point is, the Bible makes it clear, we've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. Then he says later on in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, He says, for the wages of sin is death. The consequence for sinning one time is death. It's like, man, that seems a little harsh, really? I say one little lie, and God says, you're deserving of death? What kind of God is this? He's a perfect God. He's a holy God. And for us to make it in the presence of perfection, we too need to be perfect. But we can't do it on our own. We can't live the perfect life. That's why it says in the second part of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I know you can't do it. That's why I did it for you. By putting your faith in me, no longer are you dead in your sins, directing yourself towards hell. Now you're redirected. You're going towards heaven, not because of what you did, but because of what I did. By you putting faith in what I did. See, Jesus... He gave us the greatest thing he could offer. He gave himself. By giving his life, he earned us grace. We can't earn grace. Jesus earned grace for us. After he says that Jesus gave himself for our sins, he says that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Jesus, he didn't just come to forgive us of our sins. He he didn't even just come to, to deliver us from the power of sin. You know, the power of flesh, that thing in us that wants to do the things we're not supposed to do. And, and, and we struggle and we battle and we do the things we hate to do. He gave us power over the flesh. But not only that, the Bible says he came to deliver us from this present evil age. Because it's not just our flesh that we battle with. We battle with the influences of the world. We, we battle with culture. Sometimes our culture 
says, things are okay that aren't okay according to the word of God. What's wrong with having premarital sex? Come on, we're way past Bible times. The Bible is not just for then, it's for now, and it applies today just as much as it ever has. What's wrong with homosexual relationships? What's wrong with abortion? We're in America. Things are different now than they used to be. The Bible stays the same, and the Bible has answers to all of these things. See, the world wants us to conform to it. Why? Because there's this overarching authority of the world. His name is Satan. He's referred to as the God of this world or the God of this age. And he influences us through the world and with three things. First John chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 talks about it. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He uses these three things to influence us to conform to the world. What Jesus is saying is not only did I come to forgive you of your sins, deliver you of your sins, but I came, you to del- I came here to deliver you from the influences of the world around you so that you can say, this might be what my culture says is right, but I know it's not right because this is what God says. Might lose friends. People might not like you. They might think that you're stubborn and narrow-minded. But Jesus said narrow is the way, difficult is the path that leads to life. He makes exclusive statements. He speaks many absolute truths to help us understand how he wants us to live in this present age. We don't have to conform to the world. We can be transformed by the word of God and the spirit of God. And he says this, verse 4, after he says that uh, he might deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The gospel was God's will from the beginning. It was God's plan from the beginning. The gospel was the work of God for the glory of God. It wasn't just like, uh, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? These people ended up sinning. Like God wasn't shocked when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Okay, He's not shocked when we fall into sin. That doesn't mean it's okay. But it also doesn't mean that God's like was scrambling like uh, the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. They got their brains together. Like, what do we do next? Like, what are we going to do? And God, the father's like, judge them. These people deserve to get judged. And Jesus is like, man, I kind of like them. I'll go and die for them. They, they were on the same page the entire time. See, God, he didn't start loving us because Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us because God loves us. That's why he sent his son to do what we could never do. It was God's will. It was God's plan from the get-go. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul says he's astonished that they're turning away from God and the gospel. This doesn't make sense to him. He recognizes how much he's been forgiven of. And because he's been forgiven of much, he loves much. He recognizes the grace of God. He understands it. He says, how could you turn away from it? Why would you throw this gift of grace away? It's like spit in his face and considering what he did for us. Let me ask you, 
Why do people turn away from the grace of God? Why do people turn away from the gospel of Jesus Christ? Maybe for some, they, they just can't accept grace. They, they can't accept forgiveness. Maybe for some, they don't like the idea that uh, Jesus is supposed to be not just my Savior, but my Lord. I don't want to submit to Him. I want to do my own thing. For some, maybe it's, hey, I, I like the lifestyle. I'm living too much to let go of it, to surrender it. There are many re- reasons why people turn away from the grace of God, but none of them are good. I want to remind us of a story back in Exodus. If you recall, God, he called the Israelites Israelites out of the bondage of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt working every day for over 400 years, and God called them out. And God performed a bunch of miracles to get them free and bring them to the promised land. And every one of those miracles are supposed to be filtered through God's character. God. He reveals his character to Moses. He proclaims the name of the Lord in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 to 7. And he says, the Lord, the Lord God, first two words, merciful and gracious. Then he says, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. What's his point among many things? Yes, he wants them to know who he is. But what he's telling them, the reason I brought you out of Egypt It's not because you earned it. It's because I'm merciful and gracious. The reason I parted the Red Sea is because I'm merciful and gracious. The reason I brought manna from heaven and water out of a rock is because I'm merciful and gracious. And the reason I'm bringing you to the promised land is because I'm merciful and gracious. God revealed his mercy. He revealed his grace to the Israelites in the beginning. And what happened? As God is revealing himself to Moses giving him the Ten Commandments, among other laws. Moses comes down, and what are the people doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. They turned away from the grace of God. They turned away from the mercy of God. They wanted to raise up an idol. They wanted to worship something that they could physically touch, that they could understand a little better. See, people have all sorts of reasons why they turn from the grace of God. But can I ask you, have you turned from the grace of God? It's easy for us to turn from the grace of God and turn to idolatry, turn to whatever floats our boat, whatever whatever satisfies our flesh. But when we turn from the grace of God and pursue these other things in life, they'll always keep us wanting, lacking, never having enough. But there's good news. See this phrase here in verse 6, this turning away. The idea here in the Greek is they haven't turned too far away. That there's a chance to turn back. That it's not too late for the churches in Galatia. There's still a chance to turn back to the grace of God. They've gotten far away. They've walked away from God. They've accepted a different gospel. But it's not too late to turn back. Paul typically... In his letters, he has an encouragement for the church or churches, depending on who he's writing to. Even the church of Corinth, okay? And the church of Corinth, let me tell you, they were a mess. And Paul still had encouragement for them. The epistle to the Galatians, he doesn't encourage them. And I don't think it's because they don't have anything that they're doing right. I think he's so concerned about their salvation that he doesn't even focus on the encouragement. Yeah, there may be encouragement, But if the church isn't saved, then the focus has to obviously be their salvation. Look what he says here. 
In verse 6, it says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. From who? From God. They aren't just turning away from the message. They're turning away from God. They're turning away from God. Some people, they'll say, I have a problem with why God says in the Bible that if people don't accept the gospel, then they're going to hell. You know why? It's right here. To reject the gospel is to reject God. To, to reject, like, let's put this in, in, like, understandable terms, okay? Does anyone have a child, okay? Anyone have a child in here? I know a lot of you do. Are you with me still? I know it's getting afternoon, probably tired, you know? And this illustration doesn't exactly line up. But if you sent your child to die for someone that you loved, you chose someone else over your child, like, I don't know anyone in this room that would do that, and if you would, just please don't tell me. And they still rejected you anyways. And they said, I don't want nothing to do with you. That's a lot of hurt. That's a lot of pain. See, God, he sent his only son. He sent the person that he loves the most in this world to die on a cross for our sins. So if we reject the gospel, we're rejecting the love of God. It was the ultimate act of love. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. If we say, God, your son wasn't good enough, God says, I guess I'm not either. And if you want to make that decision, I'm going to hold you to it. And yeah, maybe there's some time to turn back from that and turn to me. But we're not promised tomorrow. And God, when it's all said and done, if we reject the gospel, we're rejecting spending eternity in his presence. He takes the rejection of his son personally. I would too. He goes on in verse 6. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He says, I've called you in the grace of Christ. We're called to receive the grace of God. God has set us apart to hear the word of God. He's literally sanctified us just to hear the word before salvation even happens. And we have a responsibility as to how we respond to that message. Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. Heck, I'm calling all of you. But you know what makes you chosen? Choosing me back. Choosing to respond to the grace of God. I want you, but you got to want me too. It says they turned away from him who called them in the grace of God to a different gospel. This is point number two. There's only one gospel. There's only one gospel. Anyone who adds or takes away from one of the core aspects of the gospel is teaching another gospel. It's not the gospel. Here are the basic tenets of the Christian faith as far as the gospel is concerned. That Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He was not a created being. The Bible doesn't teach that he was a created being. In John chapter 1, among other places, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. It's God in the flesh. Not only that. He came to live a perfect life and die on the cross. It wasn't an illusion. It wasn't Judas up there. It wasn't someone else. There wasn't this replacement. It wasn't like he almost died, swoon theory. Uh, but he didn't really die. People thought he died, but he didn't really die. 
No one's surviving the cross. Atheists will even say, the most confident historical fact that we can maintain concerning Jesus Christ is that he died on a cross. (laughs) Even atheists will say that. Yet there's some religions, like Muslims primarily and others, that will reject the cross. They'll reject the deity of Christ. And they'll also reject the resurrection. And that's the third thing. Jesus rose from, the, rose from the dead. He's God in the flesh. Died on the cross. He rose from the dead. It, it wasn't a hallucination that over 500 people had. It, it wasn't some conspiracy theory that the disciples were like, man, we really like what Jesus was saying. We want to start a movement. Okay? It, it, you know what their reward was for starting a movement? They were all killed. They weren't doing this for selfish gain. They were doing this for their love for their Lord because they knew who he was and they saw him risen from the dead. It wasn't just a phantom. It wasn't just a spirit. The Bible teaches that he rose in bodily form. Many religions try to take away or distort some of these basic tenets of Christianity. And when they do that, they're spreading a different gospel. See, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is perverted, gospel means good news. So if the good news of Jesus Christ is perverted, then it's no longer good news. It's bad news disguised as good news. Anyone ever been on a cruise ship? Some? Okay. Once you remember it. Everybody's seen a cruise ship, I imagine, right? Okay. A false gospel is like a luxury cruise liner, a luxury cruise ship with a hole in the bottom that no one can see. It it, it has all the amenities, it has all the perks, it has all the food, there's comfort, there's convenience, but the people don't know that if they choose to get on that ship, they're going to sink, they're going to die. So many many people, they, uh, 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 they accept a false gospel, they accept a different message than what Jesus actually preached. And they're going to sink unless someone tells them the truth and they respond to that truth. He says, which is not another, only one gospel. There are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. There were false teachers in the church. False teachers in the church, it's not just, it isn't just like a present day thing that we struggle with. There's been false teaching in the church since the church began. This is why it's so important that we be students of the word. God calls us to be students of the word. He doesn't just call us to to listen to a message here and there. He calls us to study, to show ourselves approved unto God. Don't take my word for it and what I say. Take his word for it. There has to be that constant, not that you're just skeptical about everything, but that you're looking at these things and you're saying, hmm, I didn't think about that, or I'm not sure about that. Uh, I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. I want to hear it from God himself. What does he actually say in the Bible? If we're just going, uh, walking out our Christian faith based on everything everyone's ever told us, then we're doing it wrong. We're called to be students of the word of God and search for these answers with him as we open up the Bible. See, there were false teachers in the church, and many of these false teachers... In context of Galatians, were the Judaizers, right? They were saying Jesus plus keeping the Mosaic law equals salvation. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Sabbath perfectly. You need to do A, B, C, and D, and then you can be saved. He says they're perverting the gospel of Christ. To pervert in this context 
It means to turn upside down or reverse. They're going backwards. Literally, they're going back. That was the old law that we couldn't keep that was meant to reveal our sin. That was the point. We couldn't keep it. See, the gospel transforms religion to relationship. And what these Judaizers were doing was taking a relationship with Jesus Christ and reversing it back to religion. It wasn't the gospel. The text continues. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. Almost there. But even if we, he's saying himself included, even if I, listen to what he says, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As he, we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Paul's saying the message of the gospel, it's bigger than one individual. Heck, he says it's bigger than even an angel. Why? The power is not in the messenger. It's in the message. It's in the, the messenger doesn't save you. It's the message that saves you. It says, even if I tell you something different, don't believe me. Go based on what's already been communicated to you through Jesus Christ and the foundation that the apostles laid. There's an angel apparently speaking to one prominent man, giving them a message to share with others that contradicts this gospel, then it's a different gospel. We got to remember, Jesus didn't just give a message, being God in the flesh, to one person. It wasn't like, here's Paul, Paul, go around and spread this thing. No, he spoke to many people. Why? Because it says in the Bible, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let it be established. Yet their religions, that apparently an angel came and spoke to one person. And that one person has started a religion based on revelation. Biblically, it's not okay. It's not right. And we see some religions that were started by angels. You look at Islam, Muhammad. The first revelation that he received, he thought he was demon-possessed. And the demon was telling him to jump off of a cliff. Fast forward, all of a sudden, he thinks these are this is uh, the archangel Gabriel giving him these messages. But what Muslims believe is that Jesus wasn't God in the flesh. It's actually uh, the only unforgivable sin is to say it's called shirk, that Jesus, God has no son, okay? If you commit uh, shirk, it's to say that God, uh, that anyone is equal to God, including Jesus Christ. They use him as an example. They also say Jesus didn't die on a cross. So that means we don't have to worry about the resurrection either. As Luke communicated they're just people and Muslims, people in general. They're, they're not our enemy, but it's so important to understand the basic tenets of our faith so that when something gets communicated to us, that's off. We're able, able to address it and understand what's actually true. He says, if I tell you something different, if we tell you something different, if an angel tells you something different, why? Paul tells us later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And you know what he does? He doesn't just completely sell you like a totally different truth. He twists the truth. If I can work with what you already believe and and just take a couple little truths away, Jesus wasn't really God. Are you sure? Did God really say exactly what he did to Adam and Eve? Are you sure about the resurrection? Are you sure about the deity of Christ? What about the cross? You confident about that? 
to get us to question these things and actually believe them, then he can rob us of eternal life. He says, if anyone's doing this, let them be accursed. And he says it twice. Paul's concerned about the false teaching that's going on in the church because he knows it's leading other people astray to accept something that doesn't save. So where we'll close, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I have two short points here. See, Paul, he's not the guy that's going to just tell you what you want to hear. He's the guy that's going to tell you the truth. He said, I'm not here to seek to please men. I'm here to seek to please God. This is the third point. The gospel asks us to seek to please God, not man. The gospel asks us to seek to please God, not man. Paul, he's more concerned with their salvation than their friendship. And this is the same mentality that we should have. We should care more about people knowing Jesus than liking us. I'd rather lose friends by sharing the gospel than lose souls by shutting my mouth. He said, quit caring about what everybody thinks about you. Care about what God thinks about you and what he wants to accomplish in and through your life. He wants people to get saved. And if you're worried about what everybody else thinks about you, then you're making yourself a slave to man and not a slave to God. The Bible calls us to be slaves to God. That's what he says. Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. A bondservant is literally a slave. Fourth and final point, the gospel asks us to be slaves to Christ. The gospel asks us to be slaves to Christ. A bondservant specifically, uh, we see it in a few places, but in Exodus chapter 21, uh, verses 5 uh, to 6, after six years, a slave was uh, able to go free. It's like they signed a deal, uh, if you will. Uh, but we see that they had an option to, to, to permanently enslave themselves to their master. It'd be like this. Wow, I realized working for this guy for the last six years was way better than the life that I had before. So the text actually says, for the love he has for his master, he chooses to commit his life to him forever. This is what Paul's talking about in being a bondservant. When I consider my life before Jesus, when I was master of my own life, I was miserable. I was a wreck. Moments of happiness, but it never lasted. I realized Jesus is a way better master over my life than I am over my own. And the Bible doesn't make this bondservant thing like a suggestion. It's part of it. Let me share with you the last verse we'll share. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Paul writes this. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul says, if you've accepted Jesus by faith, something happens. There's an exchange that takes place. We put faith in Jesus and he comes and lives inside of us. Now, you're no longer your own. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to him. It's the great exchange. He gave his life for me, so I'm going to give my life to him. I'm going to live my life for him. 
It's not that we enslave ourselves to get saved. When we actually accept Jesus, we receive salvation and something happens in our heart. Something happens in our life. Not that, oh, I have to do all these things to please Jesus. I want to live a certain way because I want to please Jesus because I love him and he's a good master. And I know he tells me to do certain things because he loves me and he wants the best for me. It's a totally different heart. It's not for salvation. It's from salvation. Paul recognized the only freedom that he could have was by being enslaved to Christ. And this is the same that holds true for us. So we each have a decision to make in how we respond to the truth of the gospel of God, just as the church in Galatia did. We can choose to be slaves to men, choose to be slaves to the world around us, or we can choose to be slaves to Christ. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the gospel, of the grace of God, to remember where it all started. That's the foundation. It's got to continue to build on the foundation. I accept the grace of God through faith. He comes and lives inside of me. He starts changing desires. He starts changing things in my life. And now I want to live for Him. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for your grace, God. We know we don't deserve it, Uh, Lord. we, we, We thank you for what you did on the cross. And I pray, God, if there's anyone here that's struggling with that, they're struggling with the basic truths of the gospel, they're, they're struggling with faith in general, they're struggling with receiving grace, uh, whether they're a child of yours or, or not, God, I pray that they wouldn't leave here without security, security in your completed work on the cross. God, so help us understand what it means to grow in the grace of God. I pray that you would bless this series, that you would bless everyone that came today, uh, Lord, and we would rediscover your grace in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.